Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for providing your word. We thank you that you have uh, given us all the blessings, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And Father, we ask that this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct and help each and every one of us to understand the message in your word today. Father, you also want to take a moment again this week to pray for all those who are suffering as a result of Hurricane Ian. We pray for all those who are suffering in any way, particularly members of our congregation. And we ask that again, that you would take care of all the needs that people have, but most importantly for our spiritual needs, Father, and that you may open up our eyes to all that you have given us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You could stand at this time and we will have a song this morning to begin. Morning again. I'd like to remind you of a couple of things as we get started. First of all, Pastor Kingsley, his mission trip to the West Indies is going to occur from November 1st to 15th. Uh, so please keep him in prayer about that. Also, um, also want to mention this morning that uh, Pastor Adams in India is setting up that home for lepers. Um, he's now renamed it. We actually had a hand in that. Um, and it's now called the Healing Hands of Christ Home for Lepers. Yeah. So and by the way, he hasn't he hasn't wasted any time. It's actually open now. And already receiving residents, and he sent us some pictures of, uh, you see, it's a lot of women because it's a lot of women who are widows who don't have anywhere else to go. Um, you can see that they're in prayer, and you can just, I don't know if you can see the expressions on some of their faces, but you can just see their happiness about the fact that they've got a place to live. So, um, and of course... That's, I'm telling you that because I also want you to see the, the effect, the impact on, on helping people um, both physically and spiritually uh, when we do support these um, missionary activities. And there's another picture of them in prayer. And you can see the sign in the back, Healing Hands of Christ Home. It opened on the, ten, it opened on the 5th, rather, this week. We, uh, we, do have to, we did have to correct them on the proper sponsors. Um, I don't know why they had some names there, but it should be Lighthouse Bible Church because there are a lot of people that are helping out and giving to this. So speaking of which, remember that this is a giving opportunity. They are going to have 35 residents. You can see they have probably about 10 right now. But they're going to continue um, inviting people to the home. And uh, they do cover pretty much everything that the people are going to need, rent, meals, utilities. And it's approximately... For all of the people now, not for one person, for all of them, $1,000 a month. Um, we've committed to that, to helping them in that amount for the next 12 months. I can tell you, too, though, that um, once people have heard about this home, as you can imagine, um, there's a, there are a lot more people who are coming out of the hospital who would just love to be able to go there. And so um, there is a great need. At this point, um, this is what we can handle, so to speak. But we should be praying that the Lord would enable us to give give us the capability to support more people. Um, so keep that in prayer. Um, 
By the way, I mentioned this before, too, that um, you should direct your gift to the church, Lighthouse Bible Church. Indicate that the gift is for the healing hands of Christ home. Now, if you put the old title, what was it, Grace Leprosy Home, we'll know what it is. But we figured, why not use the official name now? The Healing Hands of Christ Home. All right. Let's begin our message this morning. It comes from the chapter title comes from chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. I'd like you to turn there now. The title, The Lord God Commanded the Man. This is something new in the garden. The Lord God Commanded the Man. Please turn to Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 15 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. In our series on what it means to be human, we have begun here at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. This series has been motivated by the fact that Jesus Christ is perfectly human as well as God. And we're asking that question, what does it mean to be human? We saw that God originally created man in his image and his likeness, forming man from the dust of the earth. He was earthy and breathed his life into him. And the Lord gave the man dominion over all the things on the earth and the sea and the sky. And he crowned him with glory. The Lord God provided man with everything he would ever need or desire. Everything. And we saw that the Lord made a special place on the earth for just the man to live in. It was a garden. Garden of Eden. In that garden, there are many, many trees And the Lord grew two unique trees in the midst of the garden, a special place. One of them was the tree of the life, the life, and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But remember, everything God created was good. Nothing was evil. That brings us to today's passage. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. As we can see here, when the Lord placed the man in the garden, he gave him instructions. He just didn't leave him there with him wondering, okay, so what now? What am I supposed to do, right? Gave him instructions and very specific ones. The first instruction that he gave him, this is is something that we want to concentrate on because I think there's some myths surrounding this subject. The first instruction he gave, you can see it in verse 15, was what? To cultivate the garden and keep it. In other words, he was to perform a service for the Lord, And that service was to till, cultivate, keep the garden, or very simply to work in the garden. 
to work in the garden. After all, the garden required care. It wasn't a magic forest. It just didn't, right? It required care, okay? The man was to, was to put a hedge around that garden that set it apart from the forest and the fields to guard it and protect it. Now, you may ask, why? what would he need to protect it from? Well, one thing would be the animals. Remember, the animals ate the green stuff, too, and but they were not supposed to be in the garden. We Some things never change, right? People who have gardens today understand the same thing. And there's a lot of pests and so forth. Well, one of those pests would have been a serpent, interestingly enough. So the man was to watch over the garden, preserve it so that it would have would fulfill the purpose that God intended for it. That gets us back to that question. What does it mean to be human? To be human is to work. Let me say that again. To be human, to be the man in particular, is to work. And work understanding that that's service to the Lord God. When I say that, I'm not saying that the work is limited to what we now think of today as spiritual work. Not at all. After all, what was the nature of the work that God gave the man to do? It was to cultivate a garden, right? So in other words, um, any of the work that the Lord has given you to do is, is to be seen and really is work in the service of the Lord God. So all of you that have been given a, 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 a profession, a job to do, you are to do that is unto the Lord. You are to say, this is for me, my service that the Lord has asked me to give, to work in the manner that he specified in my life. You may say, how do you know what that is? Well, here's the thing. If you have a job and you're not stealing and you're not robbing and the, the business is not committing illegal acts, right, and you have some gift, you have some capacity, capability to do that work, well, for now, that is the work. So don't go on some magical quest to find out, well, I've, people will say, well, that's just not the work God wanted me to do. So I'm going to not work until I see, ah, that's that's the work that I want God wants me to do. It's not like that at all. This is the original design. This is important. This was part of God's original design for man. Why do I say that? Because he gave him this job to do while he was in the garden before he fell. It was part of the original design for man to work in the service of the Lord God. The Lord God did not put Adam in the garden to live off the government. And the government at the time, of course, was God himself. But the idea was that, that he would have his own work to do. Now, one of the misconceptions, and I think it's very broad across the church, is that working was part of the man's curse after the fall. How many of you have heard that in the past? To work is part of the curse of man. That's wrong. Because if it were part of the curse, then it wouldn't have been in the garden. Right? Does that make sense? If the, if, the, if the Lord said in the garden, I want you to do work, then clearly work is not part of the curse because it preceded the curse. Particularly working with one's hands was not part of man's curse. Now, you might say, well, what about Genesis 3? Uh, let's go there. Let's go there. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. This is after the fall. Okay. I want, but I want you to, under, to notice exactly what is cursed after the fall of man. 
Genesis 3, 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. No, fellas, that's not the curse. And let's continue. And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is what? What's cursed? The ground. Because of you no longer would the work be work that was designed for them to do. But the, the curse would be on the ground. OK, in other words, there was something about what, how the ground changed that changed the nature of the work. Doesn't mean that work was part of the curse. The ground was cursed. Curse is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And to dust you shall return. In other words, the curse in this life was, was, was the ground that was cursed. And as a result of it, it the man will toil to eat, to eat of it. And then eventually he will die. And to the dust you shall recur, return. Now, it says that you shall cultivate the garden in chapter 2. says that you should toil in chapter 3. Is that the same thing? And the answer is no. Okay, the Hebrew word for toil, and sometimes you do have to go to, to the original language to understand some differences. Right? Well, the Hebrew word for toil in Genesis three seventeen is different from the word cultivate in Genesis two fifteen. I want you to I want to give you a little bit of uh, of a little bit of uh, lexicon information, in other words, definition um, in the English of this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is actually it saw bone. It saw bone. Give you a little visual aid now. All right. That's not part of the Hebrew. But if you're if you're in the habit of trying to trying to remember these Hebrew words, I'll give you that picture. What does it mean? It means worrisomeness. That's its original meaning. It worrisomeness. In other words, now the man has to worry about what's going to happen. Worry about whether or not he'll be able to produce a crop from the ground because the ground is cursed. What does that mean? It means now um, if there isn't enough rain, then he won't be able to grow the crop. There are a lot of other things. If he's if he's injured, which he couldn't be injured before the fall, he wouldn't be able to get out there and so forth. It was worrisome. And it wasn't it wasn't work in the sense of productive. It was labor and labor in pain. See, the pain was not part of the original picture either. But certainly pain now, as a result of the curse of the ground, is can be part of and often is part of labor. I think most most um, men and women who uh, work with their hands, who have have strenuous jobs, can attest to the fact that over time it can, be, it can become very painful, very difficult to do that work. That's different. That was not what God established for man in the garden. And again, God blessed man in the garden with productive and, in fact, holy work. You know, one of the one of the senses of that word to cultivate and keep, especially to keep, remember, was to preserve something in, in its sanctified or set apart nature. OK, the other women are looking at that baby again, telling you stuff. I know how hard it is. The men it could care less, you know, that, but. <laughs> I don't mean that in general. I just mean they're not. I don't notice the men looking over there going the same way. But anyway, that's not part of the curse, ladies, either. All right. But you might say, well, in pain, you shall deliver. Well, that's different. 
that's something that um, happens. But anyway, we're not going to get into that subject today. So worrisome, labor, pain. That's a contrast to what the Lord established for the man in the garden when he would have work that would always be productive and, in fact, be holy, set apart for the Lord. And oh, by the way, this hasn't this hasn't gone away. The fact is that the Lord has always done this, even for his for fallen man, when when that man is redeemed so that so that believers, whether they be in Israel or today in the church, God has given us work to do that is productive and, in fact, holy in, in the Old Testament. We've studied this in the past. There was the Feast of Booths. Remember, we actually came across that in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Well, what was the Feast of Booths? It was a celebration of the production, the productivity of that land, of the fact that man work bore fruit. Okay, so we thank God we still have that element in the work that is given for believers to do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Again, the Lord God commanded the man. This is the first time we've seen this, this direct command. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Here the Lord very simply issues a command to the man. What was the nature of the man? Well, the command came also with a warning. So it was a command, right? don't do this. But then there was a warning attached to it. If you do, there will be punishment. There will be a consequence. There will be a judgment. That's the nature of this command. It's different from when he told a man to to um, cultivate the land, cultivate the garden. This is different. Now there's a command. If you break it, there are consequences. Okay, There is judgment involved. There is, in fact, condemnation involved for disobeying this command. God's dead serious about it. No pun intended. He came with a dire warning. Okay, It's a warning. So, and 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 you must ask yourself, why this? Why was there a warning? Why did God give a particular warning about this one, this command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why didn't God say, if you disobey me here, you will receive the sentence of death? Why? Keep asking that question. But, you know, before he issued that command, I want you to look at verse 16 again. The Lord commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. By the way, the Hebrew says, eating you may eat. We're going to see more of that in verse 17. It's an expression of intensity. You may eat freely, bountifully. And notice it's from any tree of the garden. In other words, the emphasis here still is on the Lord's blessing. And in fact, the other trees of the garden provided man with everything he could possibly desire and need. So there was no need for him to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why there was a warning associated with it. He emphasized first what's permitted before what is not permitted. There was just one tree that the man could not eat from. 
And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, see, see when, when chapter 3 comes along and Satan comes on the scene in the, by, in, in the form of taking over the serpent, he's going to emphasize not what's permitted, right, but what's not prohibit, pr- permitted, what's prohibited. That was a, that's the absolute reverse of what God did, the Lord God did. Genesis 2.17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, there's a question here. And it's a question that one of those questions that there are many theories about. Now, I'm going to answer the question for you this morning. The question is, what is the knowledge of good and evil? If the Lord is commanding the man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is that? What is the knowledge of good and evil? Well, there are, again, lots of theories about this, but that the one that matches the scriptures is this one. The knowledge of good and evil is the capability of making independent moral judgments. This is important, so I want to just take a minute and allow you to take this in. Okay, The knowledge of good and evil is the capability of making independent moral judgments. Makes sense, doesn't it? This I know that this is good. I know that this is evil. Right? It's a moral judgment. That's what the knowledge of good and evil is. That's what man received or grasped for himself when he ended up eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But man, God never intended man to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, he he never established or approved of of man having the capability to make, and notice that next word, what? Independent moral judgments, sovereign moral judgments. Now, why is that? Well, God did not delegate this power to man. This is is important. I want you to think about that. I emphasize the word independent because clearly we are able to make moral judgments, after all, I mean, it's in the Bible, you know, in the book of Hebrews, by practice, we had to discern good and evil. But the question there is, of course, what's practice? Right. Well, in that passage, we won't go there now. Practice means to be studying the word of God, learning the word of God and keeping it. If you do that, then you'll be able to discern good and evil. And if you look at the if you look other places where good and evil appears, it typically talks about this the capacity to make moral judgments. That's what this is talking about. God did not delegate this power to man. That may come as a shock to you. It certainly will come as a shock to the world. Well, if they even believe in God, but the idea that that in and of themselves they don't have the capacity to make good moral judgments about what is good and what is evil. They don't have the capacity. That's what God didn't design that. Why? Because we didn't need it in the garden. There was no need to make a moral judgment in the garden. Everything was good. Right? The only reason you would ever need to make a moral judgment is when evil is brought into the picture. That makes sense? There was no evil. In the garden. Everything was good. And there never would be if, if man had, had just done what the Lord asked him to do, which is to cultivate the garden 
and protect it and that and not ever to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was something, this capacity of making independent moral judgments. God didn't delegate this power to man. He reserved it for himself. We're going to see why that is. God said, it's my job to be able to discern good from evil. By the way, it tells you that while not in the garden, evil existed. And it certainly did. Right From the moment that Satan fell, evil was unleashed in the world. Evil was. Not sin, not the sin of man, but evil. So God knew about evil, but he didn't want man to have the capacity of making the moral judgment himself. I'm going to decide for myself what's good and what's evil. That was not part of man, God's original design for man. Why? Very simply, man's not capable of making moral judgments apart from God's revelation. Let me say that again. Man is not capable. We don't have the capacity of making moral judgments unless God reveals to us what's good and what's evil. Now, of course, that's offensive to the flesh. The flesh is going to say, of course I can do that. You know, the whole argument of atheism is we can still be moral without God. Right. If you've heard, you must have heard that if you ever talked to atheists or read about atheism, not just atheism, though, people that say, I don't need God. I, I've got the ability to decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. No, you don't. No, you don't. You need the revelation from God. You need, for example, the Ten Commandments to know what's good and evil. And that's just the beginning. So I'd like you to turn to see what happens. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. What happens when man decides to make his own judgments about what is good and what is evil apart from God? Apart from God. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Notice what happens when man becomes wise in his own eyes. And, and that's exactly what happened when man fell. We'll see this in chapter three. When, when, when Adam and the woman ate of the fruit of the tree of, not, of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. That they became wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. But what happens? Well, what happens is, is that man ends up calling evil good and good evil. Apart from God, we don't have the capacity of making proper judgments about what is good and what is evil. By the way, the results are in about this experiment. What happens when man decides for himself to to, 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 to declare what is good and what is evil? Again, the results are in and they're all around us. We can't miss it. We have this thing that's called situational ethics. That's a big word. What it basically means is that 
based on circumstances. Man gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. See, nothing is just right and wrong because God said so. No, I've got to look at the circumstances myself and say, well, in this case, we got to let this one off the hook for whatever reason, because of the circumstances, you know, because of the background, because of the, the fact that he had no other choice and so forth. Well, that's that's not really the way to decide what's good and what's evil. We also have relativism. What is that? It means basically you've heard this. I have my morality and you have yours. You got no business telling me what to do, just as I won't tell you what to do. Have you? Have, how many of you have heard that? Right. This this relativism. Right. It comes up in other ways too. It's like, well, if another culture has their own definitions of right and wrong, you cannot interfere with that. If the Indian culture says it's right for the woman to to be placed on the funeral pyre when her husband is 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 cremated then that's their culture you can't say that's wrong right if if a culture says that man the man has all the power over the woman you can't say that's wrong right the the muslim sharia law for example i mean we have that in our country right now how can you say that the 10 commandments are better than sharia law how can you say that the laws of the nation of the, of the United States are better than Sharia law? Well, of course, if you don't recognize the fact that there is an independent moral code that comes directly from the Lord God, you'll fall into that because you'll have no other choice. I don't need God to tell me what's right and what's wrong. And how about this one? I can't it can't be wrong if nobody's harmed. Have you ever heard about have you heard that one? You know, hey, it doesn't harm anybody, so it can't be wrong. Or this one, the choice is simply between the woman and her doctor. Who's left out of that? Well, you might say the husband, but really, at the end, it's God who's left out of it. It's not between the woman and her doctor to decide these moral judgments involving what's ultimately good and what's ultimately evil. Or another one. It's not really cheating if you don't get caught, right? A lot of people think that way, right? They make their judgments based on whether I get caught or not, or whether it's really that bad, or everybody else is doing it. But it gets far more sinister than that when you look at um, nations and ethnic groups and, and people start to look at other people and say they're evil, right? That's going on in our own country right now. We have these two armed camps that cannot talk to one another because each is convinced that the other is totally evil, of nothing to do with them. What happens? Well, what starts to happen is, you know, when you think an individual or a group is evil, then that doubt gives you in your own mind license to do whatever you want to them. You know, what, what happened? How did things come to the, to the point where the German people thought it was okay to eliminate the Jewish race. Well, first, they had to be, they had to be uh, conditioned to think those people evil. Those people are the problem, right? They deserve it. Right? That's just what happens. If you, if you label a person or a group as evil, you can say they deserve to be rounded up and shot. Well, no, they don't. And you see what was wrong with that? The moral judgment. You see, you don't have the right 
to call a person or a group evil, especially independent of God's word. Okay. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. Jeremiah talks about the consequences when even God's people decide not to listen to the Lord God and in in, in how they see good and evil. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. For my people are foolish. Why? Because they know me not. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. Why? They are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they do not know. So when people don't know the Lord, whether they understand it or not, they're stupid. Or they can be intelligent, but they're not wise. They're stupid. They don't have any real understanding. Why? Because they've rejected the Lord. They've rejected God's word. What he has to say about what's right and what's wrong. As a result, when you do that, when you cut yourself off from God's revelation about what is really evil And what is really good, inevitably, you will be, as it says, shrewd to do evil. In other words, you'll you'll get to the point where you think it's wise to do what's evil and you don't know even how to do good anymore. That's what happens when man decides I am not going to rely on God. I'm going to do it myself. Humans were designed to rely on God, by the way, for everything. I mean, that's grace. That's actually what happened in the garden. You know, man didn't make his own judgment about what trees to grow and what trees not to grow. As it turns out, God was the perfect one to do that because he knew exactly what was good for man. But in particular, we were not designed. We were designed to rely on God to reveal to us what is good and what is evil. There are there is an absolute good and absolute evil. But it's not based on what man says about it. Man's decisions, man's scholarship, man's judicial record or any of that. Ultimately, it's based on God's revelation about what is good and what is evil. And here in the garden, God absolutely forbade man to assume that power to himself, to say, I have the power to decide for myself what's in my own best interest. How many people think they do today? I know what's in my own self-interest. Don't tell me what to do. Right? You may think it's bad for me to go in that direction, but I have my reasons. Right? Deciding for himself what's in his best interest without God. And, you know, God reserved this to himself for a very good reason. And it's this. Logically now. In order to know what is ultimately good and ultimately evil, you need to know all things. Think about it. If you don't have all the facts, how can you make a moral judgment about what is ultimately good and ultimately evil? Man doesn't have all the facts. Man doesn't know everything. Only God does. Only God is omniscient. This, by the way, was the lesson that Job needed to learn, and it took 42 chapters of the book of Job for him to get get it, to get there. He thought he understood what was evil and what was good. And beyond that, he thought he was good. He thought that I'd done everything. And he was and he did a lot 
of it. I mean, there was no one like Job on the on the earth, but yet he got to the point where he said, I, I can make my own judgments independent of God. God must be wrong about this because, you know, I have I have fed the hungry. I have helped the poor. I've never even looked at another woman besides my wife and down the down the line. I, I talked to a person one time who was singing the praises of this pastor that was preaching heresy. And what he said was the basis for it was that, you know, this guy is clean living. Matter of fact, he drives a 15 year old car. And on that basis, he's got to be good pastor. Right. Well, what is that? They're making your own moral judgment without considering what's God's word have to say. Uh, in other words, a preacher can look really good. But, you know, in terms of his behaviors, in terms of his lifestyle, even what he does for the poor, even the things, the ministries that he starts, all of that. But if he is not preaching the word of God, but something else, he is not good. He is evil. Not as a person, but his behavior is evil in that regard. Only God knows what's truly good and truly bad for us, because he is the only one who knows all things. Again, Job had to get get to that point. And, and if you read the book of Job, he gets more and more worked up about this. He, he gets so bold about it that he even says, listen, you know, God made a big mistake here. Um, I have I have a case that is ironclad and I want God to come before me and I want to deliver my case to God. And God said, you want that? OK, you got it. Right. And for several chapters, all God does is point out all the things he knows that Job or any other human being doesn't know. So therefore, he's the only one to decide what was ultimately evil and ultimately good. And in this case, what was ultimately evil was Satan and that God was ultimately good. And what he did was ultimately good for his own purpose. But Job didn't know any of that. Only God knows what's truly good at, for us and truly bad for us. Do you believe that? Yeah. Do you believe that in your own life? Do you say to yourself, well, you know, I think suffering is bad. Therefore, I, I, I shouldn't suffer. And, and when God causes bad things to happen to, quote, good people, what happens? People question God's goodness, don't they? Right. If I say, look, look, you know, I know that I don't want God's word has to say about certain behavior, but I know that it's OK for me. I think it's good for me. All right? If you don't check the word of God before you make a decision, an important one, I don't, not, don't don't get scrupulous about it and say, OK, I have to I, I, I think I should brush my teeth right now. Let me check what the word of God has to say. It's not that. But it's important things, right? When you have to make a moral judgment, is this really good for me or bad for me? In, in the area of friendship, for example, you know, I really like this guy. We have a great time when we're together. He's got a lot of money and I like hanging around him, right? But the question becomes, is that really what's good for you? All right. Or is it bad for you? Only way you're going to know is really to go to the word of God and have God define what friendship is really all about. God knows. We don't. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You want to know something? It was not evil itself. A lot of people think, well, that the fruit of the tree was poisonous. No, it wasn't. It was good. After all, everything that God did 
in the garden is good. If he planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it means that that tree in and of itself is good, not poisonous. So what was the issue? It was planted, but it wasn't for man to eat. As a matter of fact, only God can, as it were, eat from this tree. Only God can have that capacity to always make the right decision when it comes to what is good and what is evil. Now, when the Lord God made this commandment, what did he want the man to do in response? Here's what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to take what the Lord had to say about that tree completely on faith. That's what he had to do. In other words, he couldn't go decide for himself. He couldn't say, you know what? I'm going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and see what happens. I want to see exactly what I have. I will get the capacity to do if I eat from that tree. I don't take God at his word here. Well, that's exactly what God wanted him to do was to take him at his word. And that's just not a casual statement to make. We're going to see how this principle is what God always wants when he declares his word to people. I want you to take what I have to say on faith, right? I want you to take me at my word. I don't want you to question me. I don't want you to doubt me. That is basically the situation. Why? Because if if Adam had simply believed what the Lord had to say, he never would have eaten from the tree, uh, from the fruit of the tree, the tree, whatever, the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I get tongue tied. I never would have done it. Right. I mean, it's like kids, you know, parents says, listen, you know, I don't want you to be out after dark. But what happens? The kid says, my father doesn't know what he's doing. Then talking about a little kid now. I'm going to go out after dark. And he goes out after dark and he gets lost. And when he gets lost, he meets up with some people that are pretty unsavory. And those people cause him great harm. See, that's it, what all that could have been avoided if, if the kid just took what the father said on faith. Don't touch that hot stove. If you take it on faith, you won't get burned. Right. But but man, very often, here's what God has to say and rejects it doesn't believe it. If Adam had simply believed the Lord and, and, had no, and had nothing to do with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then what, 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 what would he be able to do? Well, there was that other tree. See, there was another tree that was special that God had said that the, that the man could eat from freely. And what was the name of that tree? The tree of life. In other words, believe and you will have life. Don't believe me, and then you will have death. It's that simple. As a result, the man, if he were to eat from that tree, he would be declaring his independence from God. A lot of people want to trivialize the story in Genesis and say, how can just eating a piece of fruit, how unfair is God? He puts this fruit in the garden, and he says, don't eat it. And by simply eating an apple, now all of a sudden, the whole human race has fallen. God is unfair. God doesn't know what he's doing. No, you don't know what happened, you see. Essentially, by eating from that tree, Adam was declaring his independence from God. Is that serious? It's totally serious. It's a matter of life and death. 
That's why. That's what happened in the garden. That's why God said, don't do it. He would see if if the man eats from that tree, he in effect is saying, I won't believe you, God. I don't trust you, God. I refuse to rely on you to discern what is good and what is evil. Believe me, if he would refuse to rely on the Lord for one thing, he'll refuse to rely on the Lord for a lot of things. Okay, that was the problem. What is that? What is it that when we when we say I'm going to be independent from you, I'm going to be in rebellion against you. There's a word for that. It's a three letter word. and It's called sin. Now, a good definition of sin is rebellion against God. See, see, we think of it in a very casual way. You know, we think, well, you know, I just stole a little bit or, well, yeah, I cheated on my wife, but I just did it a couple of times. But you have to understand something. You rebelled against God, right? I mean, that's what that's what David said in the Psalms, right? Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is rebellion against God. Adam was essentially when he grasped that fruit and ate from it, he was saying, from now on, I will rely on myself to decide. And that, my friends, is the essence of of sin. And here's the thing about sin and disobedience. If you scratch disobedience, you know what you'll find underneath? Unbelief. Unbelief. Why? Because if you were to believe the Lord, you wouldn't be disobedient to him. So that when you are disobedient, you are not believing in the Lord. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Paul makes a bold statement. Now, the context is interesting because it's talking about eating and it's talking about eating. Paul first says in there, listen, you know, God is everything that God has given is good. Same principle as the garden. But. If what you're doing is offensive to your weaker brother, then it's wrong. Now, would we have come up with that idea? Probably not. But God came up with that idea because it's not only what's good for you, but it's what's good for your brother and your sister. God gets to decide what's good and evil. What are the, what, are, what is the significance of that? Well, let's read Romans chapter 14, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned. If he eats. Why? Because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Underline that in your mind or maybe in your Bible. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's another definition of sin. Anything that's not from faith is sin. What is that talking about? When it says faith here, it's talking about believing what the Lord has to say, relying on the Lord to tell you what's sinful and what isn't. Okay, if you're if it's not from faith, it's sin. That's why you scratch disobedience and you find unbelief. You find unbelief. Another definition of sin is this: sin is disobedient to disobedience to God's direct command. God's direct command. It's caused, though. How is, why is it that you disobey God's direct command? 
Well, that's caused by not believing God's word, you see. And God, there's a competitive word out there. There's, a, there's another voice out there. You see? And there's only two, right? There's God's word, and then there's the lies and deception of God's enemy. If you are not obedient to God's direct command, then by definition, you're obedient to the lies and deceptions of God's enemy. Does that sound serious? You bet it is. You bet it is. I mean, I mean, Paul talks about it as being when, when you're deceived, you're captured by, by the enemy. The, the thinking is real simple. This is the thinking that Adam ultimately had. Not your will, God, my will. Or to put it in a more modern way, I am my own project. I am the captain of my soul. Well, that's a great definition of sin. Because ultimately, what are you saying? You're saying this. I will be the final authority on this. I will be like God. I'll replace God. God says he's the final authority. I don't believe him. I'm going to be the final authority on this. I will be like him. I will take over his duties. Well, it's interesting because the very first sin in the universe, the essence of sin, go back to the first one. If you want to understand, it's at the essence of something. Well, the first sin in the universe, first sin of man was Adam in chapter three of the book of Genesis. But the first sin in the universe happened long before that. And I want you to see the nature of the first sin. The first sin, of course, was not was not committed by a man. It was committed by an angel. It was committed by Satan. It was committed in his heart. There was unrighteousness. He found unrighteousness in his own heart. That was the first sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14. Notice the two words it starts with. I will. It's my will that counts. It's what I want that counts. I know this is not what God said, but too bad. I'm going to do it anyway. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and notice essentially what? I will make myself like the most high. I will no longer say that God has sovereignty sovereignty, sovereignty over my life. I'm going to take over for him. I'm going to make myself like the most high. I want to be in charge. I want to be sovereign. I want to be my own project. I want to be king of the hill. That's the that's the essence of sin because that was the first one. Okay, as we close today, let's go back to our passage in Genesis chapter 2, and we're not going to focus again on verse 17. We're going to look at uh, an expression in the English and in the Hebrew. And the, and the, the Hebrew expression um, is something that people have interpreted different ways. Okay, But I want to give you, um, based on the Hebrew language itself, what is actually being said there. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You see, what, what, what people stumble over is this, that, well, you know, in chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord said in the very day they'll eat from it, 
that Adam was going to die. And yet when I read chapter three, he ate from it and he didn't die. Was God lying? Did God change his mind? Was Adam actually more powerful than God? Well, of course, that's silly. But I want you to understand dying, you will die. Dying, you shall die. Wrong way. Excuse me for a second. It's a Hebrew idiom. In other words, it's a construction in the Hebrew language. Okay. In the English, we have sort of similar things, right? You might see he's a man's man. Okay. All right. In the Greek, Paul said, I was, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, it basically just means that there's intensity there. It's an intense statement. All right. Take this to the maximum. All right. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a man's man, right? That's essentially what we have here in the in the in the Hebrew. Also, it's an idiom that basically adds intensity to the verb die. You say, I want you to understand the intensity of what I'm saying here, Adam. Dying, you will die. Essentially, what he's saying is you will surely die. There is no doubt about it. That's why he repeats it for emphasis, for intensity. After all. This was God's pronouncement of a judicial sentence of punishment, a condemnation for sin. And again, he wanted to emphasize the point. Now, here's what you need to understand also. You see, that idiom portrays the certainty. You will certainly die, not the timing. See, people read, well, he says in the day you eat of it, you won't die. Well, actually... What he's saying is in the day you eat of it, it is now certain that you will die. Those are different. Can you see that the different one says, you know what? The day he eats of it, boom, he's dead. The other one says, no, what happened when he ate from it was that he was locked into the certainty that he would die. That's basically what the what the Hebrew is saying. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam, you've essentially signed your death warrant. From that moment on, it's a certainty that you will die. The man disobeyed the Lord. He would be sentenced that day to death by God's decree. The wages or consequences of that sin was death. And that's Romans 6.23. And in you, let's go there. We got enough time. Look at Romans chapter 6.23. Romans 6, 23. The day that you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. It's a certainty. You will receive the death sentence. It's essentially what Paul writes here, but he adds something. And it's really important to see what he adds also. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. The consequence, the sentence for death, the wages, what you reap, when you sin, ultimately is death. It's the same thing that we see. Dying, you will surely die. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it wasn't over. It was, God didn't say, that's it. Adam, you're, you committed that sin. You, you die right now. Why? Because you know what? If Adam had died on the day, literally the day, that he had committed that sin, I hope you understand that there would be no human race if he died that day. There, there would then be any children yet, right? 
Cain and Abel came after, Seth, which would, would be the one that would really establish the line, came hundreds of years later. So if he if he had decided, if God said, I'm going to kill Adam today, that would have been it. There wouldn't be any human race. God, as it were, left open a door. God said, you know what? I'm not through with man. But I need to get him back to the principle of I give freely and you trust in me. You believe in me. And when that happens, now you have that you can eat forever from that tree of life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Once again, death was not part of God's original design for man, but it would surely follow that any decision by that man to disobey the command that God had given the man. A command, by the way, that was intended for good. A lot of people want to make God out to be arbitrary. Or why is he testing man? He knew what would happen. Well, actually, that command, though there is a warning, was intended for good. Now, that, that that's a little interesting. You can understand why eating from the tree of the life would be good. But why was the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why was that command good? And it's real simple. See, the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was designed for a purpose. It was designed to impress upon the man his need to have faith in the Lord God. That's why it was there. It was saying, here's here's the thing. If you obey me on this, if you believe me, then you will get to eat from the tree of life always, the other tree. In other words, it's a matter of life and death. But when the Lord wanted Adam to believe him, he wanted him to trust him. He wanted him to make it a practice to believe everything that God said. And as long as he did that, he would remain in the garden and he would have access to that tree of the life. Believe in the Lord and you will always eat from that tree. And we've seen that all, we've seen that very principle in the Gospel of John several times. I just want you to look at one as we close. Look at John chapter 5 verse 24. And this is something that 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 Jesus says many times in the Gospel of John. John 5, 24. Truly, truly. By the way, there's another repetition for intensity, right? Truly, truly. You really need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. I say to you, he who noticed this, hears my word and what? Believes him who sent me. Adam heard his word, but he didn't believe it. Anyone who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. You do that and you have it. And what's 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 amazingly blessed about our situation is we can never lose it. We make that decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior, that he died for us to undo the works of the devil. He died for our sins. That reverses everything. You simply believe that the Lord has died for your sins. You have eternal life. And we know that because of what he says next. He does not come into judgment ever, but has passed out of death into life. See, when Adam fell, the human race was in a a condition of death. 
and a certainty of death. When Jesus comes, dies for our sins, now by simply believing in him, we have passed out of death and back into life. It is it is actually, as it were, uh, uh, back in the garden, although it's much better than the garden because we will never lose this life forever. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much this morning for shining a light on what your purposes were in everything that you did for the man in the garden. And, and, and we just want to ask, Father, that you would impress upon our hearts, just like you were trying to do with Adam, the, the importance of believing in your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, just a reminder, a um, couple. We will have Bible study. We will hopefully have Bible <laughs> I've said this in the last two weeks, and I didn't fulfill it. But we will, we should have Bible study this Thursday, October 13th, 6.30 p.m. As usual, we will be on Skype and we'll be live and in person here. Don't forget the needs in the mission field for Kingsley, particularly prayer for him and for, for Pastor Adams and his ministry to the lepers. There, both prayer and finances are needed. Remember, too, that in terms of giving, our giving policy comes from the New Testament. And it's basically God gives freely. He expects us to give freely. What that means is from the church's point of view is we are not supposed to put pressure on you to give. We're not supposed to say you must give a certain percentage because then that little word freely would be violated. So we don't do that. Okay. There's no price tag on anything that we offer. Okay. On the other hand, when you do give in that manner, you're imitating your father. And so you see, in that sense, it's a privilege. When God gives you the resources, okay, to be able to, then you have the privilege of, of giving in a manner, and, and, and God will show you what he wants you to do with that in a manner that supports uh, the working of the ministries, that supports the other believers that are in need, because that's an essential function of giving also. And we, uh, most people now give from our website, PayPal, but you can also um, send, send it in the mail, and our, our address is on our website. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that man has fallen. We are all born dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God came, in the, and, and gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's in the flesh. And, and he went to the cross and died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as their savior will never perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is simple and we are asked to tell other people about it. And, and, and they can only take that on faith because it's going to contradict everything that they think they know. But if they hear the message of the gospel and believe it, then they are saved forever. They have eternal life and they can never lose it. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for all that you've provided in the service today. Help us, Father, to have the response of faith to what your word has to say. Help us to trust in you rather than our own judgment. And we ask, Father, as we close today, that you would take care of us and take care of particularly the ministries and the missionary field and those who are in difficulty and suffering at this time. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.